Hello, this is Carol Yin, and you're listening to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Now, the topic of our today's show is the state of China and SoftBank in 2019. And our special guest is Shai Oster. Welcome, Shai. Hi, thanks for having me. And now, Shai is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has been covering China since 1998. And he's also the Asia Bureau Chief at The Information. And of course, a longtime friend of the show. This is going to be your third time doing the year end review with us, isn't it, Shai? This year, 2019, because you started in 2017, I believe. Wow, I had no idea. Time flies, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah.、We're、yeah. Having fun? Are we having fun? I hope so. Okay. Yes. <laughs> And so, since your last appearance on the show, what have you been up to? <laughs> Not much. Been, it's funny. So, we've been watching the cleave, the beginning of the great unwind. We've seen a wave of IPOs rise and fall and trying to keep ahead of the next development. I think this has been a year of big surprises, a lot of anxiety about the future, I think. I agree. And we probably didn't see all of that coming. Before we jump into talking about the state of China and South Bank for 2019, Let's do a quick review what、uh, some of your predictions were a year ago in our 2018 podcast. And so, if the show notes are correct, some of your 2018 predictions include that Didi is going to IPO at the end of 2019, ByteDance will continue to grow and fight Facebook in Southeast Asia, but will not IPO. And financials path to IPO is not so clear. And then we were just wondering what will happen to Xiaomi with their overseas expansion. And the first quarter of scary growth in China will probably be followed by a wave of government stimulus in China. So, what would you score yourself in the 2018 predictions that you gave? Not miserable. Actually, you know, let's, let's、yeah. go through. So, Didi,、hmm. I was wrong on Didi. Okay, definitely that. Okay, so that minus one. ByteDance, <laughs> yes, right? We definitely,、yes. ByteDance in, in India is now huge. I didn't know that ByteDance, that TikTok would be so big in the US, but definitely, and the fight to Facebook has really become true. At the time, it was kind of like metaphorical, and now it's not such a metaphor anymore, right? Zuckerberg right. called out ByteDance and Recent testimony as a threat to American democracy. So that's true. And financials path to IPO is even less clear than it was a year ago. That's actually becoming more and more of a murky mess. Right. Xiaomi, poof, what happened even to their domestic growth, right? right. That's just that's been,、right. um, what's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the share price. That's just been just in a I think watching a very slow motion car crash. And then yes, good, good I was right. Good thing Lady had was,、uh, another IPO though to、uh, cash out on. <laughs> But yes,、uh, another. Yeah, what was the other IPO for the other company that he started a way long time ago? I think Jinshan. Oh, that, oh,、no? I totally missed that. I, okay, we'll, we'll go back to that one. Maybe we'll do a follow-up story. Certainly, the investors, all the people who came in at Xiaomi in the, in the last round, must be not very happy. And it was interesting that he just recently, right, the, he's announced the replacement for head of China operations, China sales, the China business for Xiaomi. Right, that was pretty.、Mm-hmm. I think was very mature for a Chinese, for any executive that publicly acknowledged, yeah, I screwed up. Somebody else has to, to do this better. But also, sort of an indication of just how things are just. Not going according to plan, 
And then the last point was the first quarter of the wave of China stimulus. Yeah, there's definitely been stimulus, right? We've seen a lot of, it's been a different kind of stimulus. They've been trying to moderate it and trying to avoid a lot of the mistakes of the past. So it's been kind of a mix of allowing banks to lend more, but at the same time, letting banks fail, letting companies that had bad, uh, like some of the bond defaults that we've seen. So there's, it's a mix of, it's a more subtle or more nuanced approach to growth stimulus than I think we've seen in the past. But effectively, the bottom line is that they're priming the pump, rather, trying to get growth going again, because, especially because as trade has been, the U.S. has really taken a hit. So they need to boost that domestic spending any way they can. So yeah, I, I think not too yeah. bad, not too bad. I think so. And, you know, there's no fun if you got it all right, you know, then people mm. will wonder, what kind of genius are you just looking into the future? <laughs> but now we can talk a little bit about what has happened in all of 2019. And you, you know, already mentioned how there's a lot of tension between China and US, etc. So what are some of the few events that you feel like in 2019 has shifted the trajectory for SoftBank and for Chinese tech giants? So Huawei, what's happened to Huawei is was an earthquake to the China-US tech relationship. And, and, and the China-US tech relationship is the most important tech relationship in the world. If you look at in terms of market cap as a proxy for how much a company is valuable, literally like the world's most valuable companies in technology are American and Chinese. Right. And the relationship between the U.S. and China and technology, is, it's a truly, I think it's a unique relationship in that I don't think two countries have ever been so tightly wound in terms of the flow of capital and talent between the two countries as China and the U.S. And they if seem you to look have at, like a love and hate mm-hmm. relationship too, you know? Yeah, well, now it's beginning more and more hate. But, you know, mm-hmm. since basically since Deng Xiaoping, you know, yeah, reform and opening up yeah, 30 right. years ago, said, you know, basically encouraged Chinese to go overseas to study. A lot of them went overseas and stayed, and they became brilliant scientists and researchers and developers all over the U.S. And conversely, American capital came into China. But you look at the first wave of China tech giants; it's all returning, right? The Huawei, the Sea Turtles come back. That's right. It's and Baidu they're all just or copying a lot of the U.S. ideas. Yeah, yeah, copying, adapting, whatever you, right. whatever word. But also the capital that back in the '90s and even the early thousands, there was no money in China that would fund a tech startup. It just right. wasn't possible. The state-owned banks wouldn't lend to a private company, let alone something that's like unreal as an <laughs> e-commerce website. And right. so it was American capital, Western capital that built Alibaba, built Baidu, built every single tech company, almost every single tech company, and certainly the biggest ones are all dependent on Western capital. Then if you look at the other industry that China and the US are telling well, the auto industry, right? Ford, GM, all these, well, BMW, whatever, they're all so all dependent the on ventures. the China market. But there's not the flow. It's not like you go to Detroit, you see a bunch of Chinese car designers hanging out. But if you go to Silicon right. Valley, the Chinese presence is not window dressing. These are like highly talented, highly valued, very important computer scientists and researchers. And some of the top researchers in America are actually Chinese descent, whether it's like Li Feifei at Stanford, and she's the godmother of machine vision with her work, or uh, Kai Fu Lee, the cross-border guy, right? He was big in Microsoft, and then Google, and then now is doing Sinovation. So it's really just this incredibly intertwined, codependent, symbiotic relationship that is now being blasted by a howitzer. Take, for example, Huawei was grew into the giant that it is completely because of licensing agreements with Intel, Qualcomm, whoever else technology they were using, right? ARM, maybe even NVIDIA. I'm not sure if these NVIDIA chips, right? So, but they definitely have that really, you know, 
these technologies were going into their phones, right? Whether through buying the chips or licensing the chips or whatever, whatever else you may have you. The basic fact, it's the world's second biggest smartphone maker. It's Android. It's Google. Of course, now Android is an open platform. Anybody can download it, but they had a good relationship, right? Huawei and Google were more than just users of Android, but they actually had developed some of and produced some of the earlier Google phones, right? I think it was the Nexus, maybe two of them. So they had a very close relationship, a commercial relationship. Yes, Huawei was working on developing its own chips. There was a commercial impetus. Sure, it's a national pride, but really licensing the chips, the costs for the chips were, were very, very high. And and you pay, you know, you... They foresaw hmm? the risk of, you know, U.S. potentially. No, no, they didn't. They didn't. We know this from our reporting that they didn't see the risk. I mean, when they saw what happened to ZTE, they got nervous. But yeah. it was really more just about, like, they felt that they were being gouged by Qualcomm on, on the IP That was costs. a business decision. Yeah, because you know what's funny about about the licensing fees for chips, they're not on like how much is the chip worth. They're based on the percentage of the value of the phone. Mm. So as Huawei is making like it adds a like a lens, Qualcomm is benefiting from the like a lens because it's the percentage of the and effectively they were like being double billed for the IP and were very frustrating. Right. Okay. <laughs> Even as they were doing this and like this for commercial reasons, their their dependency on Android, we know from our reporting that they felt very comfortable. They never thought it would ever be at risk. That relationship, right? And it's not just about Android, it's about the whole ecosystem. I hate that word, but I'll use it in this case. The ecosystem, excuse me, while I barf into a bag of apps that make the phone more than just a slab of metal and glass, right? It's the Gmail, the YouTube, the, some of the stuff that's blocked in China, but all the other stuff that isn't. So like your photo processing software, your calendar, your whatever else it might be, your Meituan on an Android platform, or your Taobao, or your, frankly, even your, your WeChat is on, a, is on an Android platform, right? Right. So those are the things that give value to the phone. Anyway, so when Huawei was shocked to discover that, oh, wait a second, we won't have access to Google anymore? Mm -hmm. It was devastating to them, right? They can still download the free Android uh, operating system, but it's all the other stuff. It's all the behind-the-scenes infrastructure that Google controls. So something as simple as like many of the apps that are operating in the Android universe will use like Google Maps or they'll use Google Fonts or they'll use whatever other IT infrastructure that Google provide and they lose access to that. So it's this whole thing and they were really just, just caught off guard. Now what happened then is that moment is when China realized, like with ZTE when that happened and the, the blacklist and the issues there, it was kind of like, you could see even within the Chinese media that's like, well, ZT sort of had a coming, right? <laughs> they cut a deal and they broke the agreement. So, you know, like, you're just being stupid. The, the reaction within China was not one of fairly moderate reaction, not like, oh, America, Germanic power is trying to contain China. With the Huawei thing, and with, of course, with arresting the founder's daughter in Canada. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, I had, like, I had senior investors, so they're ethnic Chinese, who represented Western money, who were like, literally one, one guy called me up and said, you know, this is war. <laughs> and, and he wasn't kidding. <laughs> right. This is a guy who represented like, and one was in charge of like billions of dollars in portfolio, right. you know? And he's like, and, and that portfolio was all American money, right? So right. he was representing for years the American interests. Yes. But he's like, no, this is, this is war. And it's true in a sense that like China has realized that, holy moly, we have this insane, insane dependence on American tech. 
That's right. We're completely vulnerable. Trump is volatile. They don't know what's going to come next. That's right. And even if there's a deal and Huawei is allowed to have this technology and all that, all this, all these blacklists and restrictions are unwound, it doesn't matter. Like China knows the path has been set. China has to be self-reliant. And yeah, I saw, I was Googling Huawei, you know, and one of the first hits that came up was their new phone, the Mate 30, is made with Mm. no U.S. components. It seems like they are trying to cope with the whole, you know, trade ban and everything that's forcing them not to use any U.S. content. So what do you think, how do you think Huawei has been coping, you know, with all these challenges that they've faced this year? They are also suing uh, the government for the FCC ban as well. So they're, you know, always in the news and everything. (laughs) The domestic market doesn't matter, right? Domestic market didn't have access to this whole universe of Google apps other than the Android operating system. The rest of it was, didn't matter. So within China, they're doing very well, right? Their market share has grown. It's now like very igua, very nationalistic to buy the latest Huawei. Throw your iPhone into the toilet or whatever it might be. When I was in Xiamen earlier this year, the driver was asking me what type of phone I use. And I said, an iPhone. He's like, ah, I should throw you out of the window or the phone out of the window right now. You should get a Huawei. Yeah, I hear it. Messages like that. But Huawei was, their goals earlier this year were to have huge they wanted to double their other uh, phone business i think from 100 billion to 200 billion usd sales a year or was it 50 to 100 anyway huge numbers that's just not going to happen right like buying a huawei phone outside of china doesn't make a lot of sense right now to be honest some of my chinese domestic friends because they want to be able to use vpn and if you just bought a huawei phone that's from inside of china you can't even configure your vpn so then I had friends who bought it and then end up returning it because they're like, well, I can't go on Instagram or Facebook or any of these other apps that I need to use. <laughs> Interesting. Right. And then, yeah, so that's a, a tiny, tiny fraction of, of, <laughs> of the market, right? People who are that sophisticated. So yeah, so Huawei, and then like they, they launched, oh, we have an operating system. It's like, well, that's not the issue because within China, you have Android anyway. So why, why create your own operating system? What you need is you need and all the app developers to come on board, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and within China, they don't need to leave Android because there's a whole, there's like thousands and thousands of developers. It's like you have to like start enticing everybody with like paying more money or whatever. It's overseas. And that's that's still like from the reporting of my colleague, Juro Osawa, that is the problem we just actually wrote. It was like, the issue was like the Google services. It's like they keep discovering more and more just how dependent they've become on Google and they're just grappling with it. And the fact that they keep trying to push in the U.S. with these lawsuits, you know, like if they didn't care, they would just walk away and just, you know, but they keep going back. And then Ren Junfei is like a dollar short, you know, all of a sudden, like he comes to the seclusion, he's now coffee with Ren Junfei, literally, like, (laughs) it's almost like between two ferns, I'm expecting, you know, uh, what's his name, the uh, the comedian, Zach, to, to come and interview him as well. It's just, I'm sort of confused by why... All of a sudden now, he's like willing to talk to every random blogger where for 20 years, he was like, Mr. Mystery. It's like too late, buddy. Like you guys should have been glad handing congressmen and women from decades ago, right? Like, it's just like, what's the point? At this point, just double down on being seclusive and reclusive. So I don't know. I'm confused. And I know that recently, I think it was, you know, in the news just a few days ago that they started another lawsuit against the FCC for Mm. the FCC ban 
that bars the use of you know government fund or U.S. government fund to purchase a telecom equipment from Huawei. So, what do you think、uh, holds for the future of five G for Huawei in the U.S. or across the world? I think it's. I follow the headlines and I'm very confused. So, five G matters because it's not about the phones really, but it's about all the other junk that we're going to have that will start talking to us, telling us to buy things. You know, so our <laughs> lives will become miserable once once the refrigerator is like, I think you need to be buy more milk, or like really, we do we really need more nagging in our lives? But that's essentially what's going to happen. We'll be surrounded by devices demanding that we spend money. Or we'll have、um, you know faster internet. I saw you share the the funny story on your Twitter about how a Chinese visitor to the U.S. recently was like thought to be missing because her signal service when she was roaming in the U.S. was so terrible that none of her family and friends could reach her for two days, and so they actually reported her missing to the police. And then she went back to China. And I was like, oh, I went to the U.S., but you know their signal service is terrible. But don't worry, guys. You know, I'm actually back now. Yeah, I don't know that 5G will solve that, right? Because in the U.S. We have it's a balkanized network, right? So, like, you, there's no one national network, and we also have rules about where you can put cell towers. And so, that I don't think 5G's 5G's faster. I don't know that it's. I'm, I'm not. I don't know the technical aspect of its coverage. If it's going to provide better coverage. So you'll just be lost faster. I don't know, but definitely, like you see the debate in Europe, right? So the battleground is in Europe right now, and I and I'm so confused by what's going on there. I think they haven't been able to figure it out either, right? Like in Germany, it seems to be one day, yes, we're going to allow it in, and then one second day, no, we're not going to let Huawei in. The same is true with Britain, the UK. It seems to be flip flopping back and forth on how they feel. The same for Australia. So I think this debate is is not as far from settled. So when it comes to building infrastructure, I'm curious to see how this will play out because the first wave of major infrastructure, particularly in the U.S., broadband. All the major companies that built broadband ended up, which was heavy capital expenditure, went bust because they couldn't immediately monetize that infrastructure, right? But without broadband and all these cables that were laid across the world, really, all of our heavy data heavy apps like Netflix, or frankly, Uber or Meituan or all these other services wouldn't have existed in China. The infrastructure was the cost of the infrastructure was effectively borne by the state, right? The、mm-hmm. state-owned telecom providers. You could argue subsidize the Alibabas of the world by bearing the cost of the infrastructure. I know with five G, the telecoms are are like they're nervous, right? Because they know they saw what happened with. The、previous generation of like the big leap, the costly expenditures in、um, broadband, and really those companies went bankrupt, and so they want to have a piece of the service. They want to figure out like they don't want to just like lay the, the pipes and then go broke while somebody else, you know, makes money off the water that runs through the pipes. They want a piece of the serv- of the action, and so it's a question of like, so Huawei, I guess, is going to make lots of money because it's the service, it's the one selling the equipment, and maybe it's the network, the local telecom companies, the mo- mobile networks that will. Bear the costs and are hoping to like earn back the money from all these data fees that we're going to be paying. But I, I still think it's everyone's sort of embracing this. But I, I wonder if there's really a clear if the economics of it have been clearly thought through because it was such a disaster in the last big leap of of tele of internet infrastructure. You know, I don't know. This is a battle that's going to be fought across Europe and Southeast Asia and India. 
in America, of course, we're just going to end up with a faster, but just as spotty coverage. I'm pretty excited to go back to China and maybe sign up for their 5G plans because it's. Actually- but what are you going to watch on it? What are you going to get that's <laughs> going to be so much better? Oh, look, my, my censorship is now even more instant. <laughs> yes, I'm going to go on Bilibili <laughs> and uh, the other Chinese domestic video sites instead of. But sir, uh, okay, so like if you like, you know, Qing Dynasty convoluted romance. I just want to say, though, this is definitely not allowed, but a lot of Netflix shows are actually been what they call banyun, or they've been carried over by someone to the Chinese sites, just saying. Oh, interesting. Like I was watching Terrace House, which is this Japanese reality TV show that's produced by Netflix. But I was watching that on Bilibili, which is the Chinese video site. But yes. <laughs> interesting. Do they have a licensing agreement or is it oh, really like Galban? This is definitely not allowed. Netflix should t- take them down. I mean, we'll see if they actually, you know, do all of that. But yeah, no, they don't. They definitely don't have a license. Because I know Netflix, Netflix had cut some deals in China. With, who were they doing? But no, these are individuals, individual accounts. They oh, yeah. that seems complicated. Yeah. A lot of people do that, actually. They take a bunch of shows and then they just make it available on these Chinese platforms. I don't know how they make the money, but yeah. <laughs> so uh-huh. we talked about Huawei as one of the major events for mm. 2019. What else? Well, the trade war, obviously, which is a broader, you know, all the broader implications. And so now, so it's not just Huawei and, and the rethinking of this relationship. But now I think the other big thing was TikTok. I think this is the first time that a Chinese company, tech company, has gone global. Yes, Huawei's sort of gone global. Alibaba has investments all over the world. Tencent, through its ownership of Supercell and Riot Games, is the world's biggest games publisher. But this is, TikTok is truly like a Chinese thing that has gone global. So then now the question here to ask is, because we just talked about Huawei, do you think TikTok or ByteDance as the company who owns TikTok is going to end up in the same predicament similar to Huawei? You know, being antagonized by the U.S. and... uh, Heck yes. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. eh? That was very Canadian, by the way. Um, (laughs) The A. (laughs) Yeah, and the about. They're in a tough spot. And they're... How ironic that, like, you know, that they've breached Pacific Ocean and landed on American shores just... And they've truly gone viral in America. It's like mothers are embracing TikTok you know, it's just huge, huge, huge. And Congress is like, kill it. What lousy timing for Jiang Yimin. That's you right. Know? Yeah, that's right. Uh, have, They're and, also uh, getting pushbacks hmm. in other places, for example, like in India. You know, does Yeah, in India, they've sort of worked it out in India, I think. You know, they were briefly banned and then the ban was lifted. They've really done a lot of work. They've hired very good locals. That's really interesting. So, so ByteDance, has hired a lot, a lot of locals. I don't know, there's a question of how much autonomy they have in making decisions, but they haven't parachuted Chinese, you know, I guess they've learned from the mistakes of American companies in China, where it was like, you know, you had Americans trying to like figure out how like, you know, the Ebays and Amazons of the world that can blame the the great firewall for a lot. You can't blame it for everything. There was just a lot of missteps and misunderstanding of the local market. And I think Chinese companies and entrepreneurs are keenly aware of that history. And so, you know, if you look at like the hires that they, that that TikTok and ByteDance have made in the U.S., they've really gone after like 
they poach top talent from Facebook and Google and, and Snap. And so they've tried, and in India as well, they've really hired like highly skilled locals. And so in India, they've done okay. They're pretty entrenched. I don't think they're at risk. But India doesn't matter. That's the, that's the funny thing. India is a great number to show, but it doesn't give you anything like that. You can't make any money off of it. Right. The advertising dollars won't be able to match up, you know, to the U.S. Yeah. So it's like it's a great growth story for an IPO. Yeah. But it's not a business. So then do you now, think that means that their America. overseas growth potential for the company is then at risk because of the pushback they're facing in America? Yes. I don't see a way out for them. I don't, I don't see how TikTok in the U.S. survive. I honestly don't know. I mean, like, if they're the grinder deal had to be unwell because of security concerns. And that's a fairly niche app. TikTok, which has, like, the precious bodily fluid, sorry, you know, from the movie reference. But it has all of this data about our youngest and most, and I'm playing devil's advocate, like, the most vulnerable people in our society. And it's going to the Chinese, ah, like the boogeyman. But, like, the sad reality is that if you're a company in China, you kind of have, operate in the same way, in the same environment as an American company. You really like, we've seen this happen where like the top CEO of a Chinese company vanishes for a while. Take Fosun, for example. Well, I don't know how to pronounce it in English. Fosun, remember when the CEO vanished for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, I think, to answer some questions. You know, if the Chinese government and the Communist Party want something from you and you're, you're in China, it's not like, oh, due process. There ain't no due process. That's the, that's the blunt reality. And so some of the concerns are very hard to address. It's like, you know, they can say as much as they want, like, oh, well, the servers are in the U.S. and the backup is in Singapore. And we have no control. And it's just like, like, yeah, but like, you know, if you're Shuanggui, if you're put under, you know, double detention, you have no way to say all this talk about like, we would never share if the Chinese government, even if they ask, like, seriously, like, let's, it's the sad reality. Like, and, and frankly, like things are getting tougher in China. Like, That's you know, right. the environment is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. I, I, I'm not suggesting that TikTok is in any way nefarious plot. I believe that, you know, as far as I can tell, like they're genuine, these are all genuine people with really do care, like the missteps that they've made with like, you know, censoring, they took down that Uyghur woman who was using that hilarious trope of the makeup tutorial, the eyelash tutorial, in order to talk about uh, repression in Xinjiang. You know, they backtracked pretty quickly and seems their argument that plausible, I'll take them at face value, but like the fact is that like, you know, at some point, like, if somebody in Beijing calls them up and says, you know, we're seeing a little too much stuff about uh, Xinjiang on your platform, take it down overseas. How are they going to say no? Like, right. how? Because at any moment, China can say like, oh, yeah, you're Jin Ruto Tiao. Yeah, um, shut it down. And, right. and like there's no recourse. With, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. At any moment, like, oh, this is a counter to, this is spiritual pollution. But what are you going to do? Sue them in the court? Of course not. You, you, yeah. Right? Like, what, what? you have no recourse. So they exist at the whim. And, and it's not like them in particular but like private enterprise exists at the whim and is at the mercy of the Communist Party in China. That's just, that's the truth. And we talk a little bit about, you know, overseas expansions for these Chinese tech giants like ByteDance. So do you think they'll have to just focus on other areas of the world, maybe Southeast Asia, India, Europe, etc., instead of trying to put a foothold in the U.S.? So clearly Southeast Asia is where they've, they've made a big effort. They might be making some money there, but it's not going to move the needle substantially. Right, it's cheap. It's cheap to acquire users in Southeast Asia and make a little bit of money. But if you want real advertising dollars, it's the U.S. 
Europe, they're running into the same problems that they run in in the U.S. about like privacy and censorship and control. So I think that that's what it is. Within China, you know, it's the growth is spectacular. Even as some of the apps might be slowing down in terms of like new user acquisition or user growth, the migration or the flood of digital ad dollars off of Baidu and other platforms onto the ByteDance universe of apps is phenomenal. I mean, they are just like printing money, right? They, they have so much cash coming in just from China, really. And almost all their revenue now is, is, is domestic. Then that's fine, right? I think like probably my, my guess is within, I want to make a prediction is that by the end of next year, they will have greatly reduced their ambitions or scaled back their global ambitions and just double down and renew their focus on China. And maybe they'll like keep trying to grow like long term, you know, India will eventually be a market and start doing stuff maybe in Africa. If I'm going to make one prediction is that TikTok will retreat from the US. I'm just, you know, noting it down and holding you accountable mm. next year when we talk. Okay. <laughs> well, we also mentioned just a little bit about IPO. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the public market for Chinese tech startups. So Alibaba just popped onto the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, you know, after Xiaomi and then May 20 Pin. Do you think that the Hong Kong Stock Exchange will become the Chinese tech startup support call for IPO? <laughs> so it depends a lot on the Hong Kong Exchange as well. I think the, the dual share structure is still sort of provisional, but it's definitely, I think what the apparent success of Alibaba is very appealing. And so I think, and of course, you know, the less welcome reception in the US is definitely going to make Hong Kong a much more appealing place for Chinese tech companies. And what's interesting is despite like six months of protest and unrest in the streets of Hong Kong, the stock market has been very resilient. And then so take a look at like Meituan, right? Meituan has, you know, its IPO is kind of underwhelming. Its share price at its lowest point was something like 40 Hong Kong dollars. And it is now trading, it's doubled, right? It's trading well above its, its IPO price. You know, it's kind of steadily been growing despite like six months of craziness on the streets. And again, also the, the Alibaba IPO happened in a pretty challenging time. So definitely, I think Hong Kong will become more and more appealing as they allow, in particular, like people were concerned about the dual class uh, structure that allows founders to, even though if their shareholding might be diluted, but they still have basically allows founders to retain control over their companies after listing. But it, it doesn't seem like, you know, the chaos in Hong Kong is, is going to stop in the next, you know, weeks or even months. And now we see investors moving their assets away from Hong Kong to other places, like, for example, Singapore. Right. Do you maybe foresee that Hong Kong or HKSE will lose its position as like a financial hub? You know, and what, what would that mean for the Chinese tech giants? So I don't see that happening anytime soon. It's hard to move liquidity, right? So mm -hmm. you don't need to have... I've seen this, like, the, the fact is that, like, none of the big banks are leaving Hong Kong. Like, it's, it, it hasn't gotten to the point where Goldman Sachs is scaling back its operations here or JP Morgan. None of these guys, they all have contingency plans, but no one's, no one's actually doing anything. In fact, it seems to have gotten... Like, I think there's a feeling that like, okay, well, it'll always, maybe it'll never be back to like a like ridiculously placid place it used to be. There's an acceptable level of volatileness, mm. you know, 
Do you um, think there are other time, other you know, long-term implications and effects to you know business and you know tech companies as a result of these protests, though? Because you live in Hong Kong. No, that's the weird thing, right? Like trade is going to trade, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah." It took me a little while to get into work today, but like, let's go make some money. It <laughs> yeah. just hasn't had like so some hedge funds. Or some like, if it's a 10-year fund, I've heard some people are setting up the fund in Singapore instead of in Hong Kong. Mm. But the money's fungible. Like the fact that your piece of paper is in Cayman Islands or in Singapore, you can still buy and sell in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, right? Okay. Like the, the exchange itself is like something in the air. It's all digital, right? So it doesn't kind of matter where the money is, the contracts are signed or, the, or the, your digital dollars are located. The, the exchange yeah. itself is still going to be, it's, it just has, the, it's, it's taken a while to get to this size and that liquidity is what people need. I don't think that's having an impact yet. If anything, having it another place where you can get viable exits is good, right? So it's not just, okay, it's not just having to tell the story to US investors. And it's a story that US investors may not understand because the story's in Chinese. Maybe it's a better, but then again, like Hong Kong investors, it's a weird market, right? Because it's a lot of retail investors here. They're not buy and hold. They're sort of rumor driven in and out. They can be sometimes more skeptical. Yeah, more speculative, more skeptical. But then also like the thing that's going to make Hong Kong ultimately very attractive to Chinese companies is the Hong Kong, is the connect, right? The, the connection to the mainland markets. and. So Alibaba, like I, I, I mean, I, if I, you know, I can't buy tech stocks because of conflict of interest and ethics. Yep. But if I had money, or well, so that's the only thing I don't have is money. <laughs> but if I wasn't bound by ethics laws and had and had money to spare, I would totally buy Alibaba because right. at some point, like a couple of things going to happen. There's the these massive index funds, right? So at some point, Alibaba goes becomes part of the, the index. And that's just automatically like all of these passive funds have to allocate share to every company in the index. So that's a huge boost to share price. Mm-hmm. Secondly, once yeah, I've been reading that, so it's not like a universal, like all stocks on the Hong Kong exchange are available for Chinese buyers. But Alibaba is probably going to be one of these, right? And like if I'm a mainland investor and I can get a piece of Ali, heck yeah, right? And so that's going to bump up, right? Like. It's the access to the, the pent-up demand in China for actually real functioning companies, right? Because the fact is that the Chinese, the companies listed on Chinese stock markets are an excrement show, right? It's just not, there's not a lot of quality listed on the mainland, right? Actually, and so I tried to move money. I tried to purchase uh, some stocks on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And then I went to a Chinese bank and they told me that I that I could not exchange uh, any money unless it is for studying abroad or for uh, traveling purposes. And especially I was not allowed to exchange my money into Hong Kong dollars for investment purposes, actually. Right. Well, isn't that a crime? This is one of the great ironies of, of the Chinese tech Crazy. boom is that the Chinese can't benefit from it. So they're like are, the best performing stocks, yeah. <laughs> Tencent, Ali, like the Chinese people made these companies happen, right? Like their spending is what's powering them. Like they should be able to get a little action, get a little upside. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of money on double 11 this month. You know, you should mm-hmm. let me buy some Alibaba. Exactly. Yeah. It's unfortunate. So yeah. So I think that moment, so that, you know, Hong Kong still has that, right? It's the one that's going to have that connection. You know, Singapore has really just always been more about commodities, oil trading, that kind of stuff. It's not, 
I don't think it has, it, it may be like longer term, but I don't see, I just haven't seen any indication yet of like the big bank saying it's time to move. And the unrest seems to just become background noise a little bit. Yeah, I uh, heard same things from, similar things from some of my banker friends who work in uh, Hong Kong. They're like, yeah, we still go to work, but you know, maybe you shouldn't come visit, you know, on a weekend. <laughs> Please don't wear black <laughs> kind of, kind of right, uh, right. comments. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about China and um, Hong Kong, and then which is part of China. And let's talk a little bit more about SoftBank. We all know that you know WeWork is not what it used to be. Do you think that Vision Fund One has reached its peak with the collapse of WeWork? Yes. So I feel really stupid because when WeWork was first launched, we wrote a bunch of stories where we we're like, we don't get it. This seems really speculative and like a house of cards and we just didn't get it. And we were trying to like see like, well, maybe Masa sees something we don't understand, but like you're setting up the world's biggest VC fund, but you're acting like, but a big chunk of it's going to act like a bond with a fixed coupon. Like we just didn't understand it. It turns out that maybe we weren't so stupid after all like yeah. i felt like like the, the naked boy the little boy pointing at the emperor's naked you know like everyone <laughs> yeah. else is like oh the emperor he's not naked and i'm like but he's i can see his tushy he's he's a genius right the guy's a genius right yes. hands down right okay yes. fine he, his biggest bets were much much smaller bets like the alibaba bet was like you know, a couple million dollars. And yes, these are like 10 years, 20 years, whatever, whenever his initial investment was, those dollars were worth more, but they weren't like orders of magnitude. It wasn't like $500 million bets, $2 billion bets, right? It's just like, those are private equity bets and private equity functions in a different way. And like, you know, we would hear internally that like, it was just chaos. And like the due diligence was like bananas and people who were dealing with SoftBank, where everyone was just scratching their heads. Like, what is this guy doing? The basic premise of that, like, I would bury you with my money. Uh, <laughs> it turns out that like the Cindy Lauper says money changes everything. But it also makes people, when you're flooded with cash, you, make, you can make a lot of stupid decisions. Money doesn't solve everything. More money, more problems. I'm going to quote every bad song I can think of. But, like, <laughs> and, and these were not like, these are not genius insights, right? It's kind of like deploying huge amounts of capital in a short amount of time is really hard. It's not a given that every decision you make is going to be a good one just because you have a billion dollars in the bank account. You've seen like, so, and like WeWork was just like, again, here's another example of a company that when I, when I was, people explained it to me, I kind of looking at them, I'm like, I don't get it. So I, I have a long-term liability with short-term, I'm going to sign like a 20-year lease that I'm going to pay off with like people who are renting at six month rentals or shorter increments like that's just not going to work right and, and it's like the startups are cyclical and like it's like a love hotel for, for business basically right like it's like the decor is much of, better than a love hotel yeah or it's it's like <laughs> Mongkok, like the subdivided flats right i'm gonna i'm like you're, you're basically becoming a slumlord for, 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 for the grinding startup generation, right? And it's like, and then, like, frankly, I like WeWork offices are like it's, that metaphor of the rat race is even worse because because of the, the glass wall thing they're really into. You feel, I always feel like I'm a gerbil in one of those like transparent cages with the with the pipes running between. I'm like, where's the wheel for me to like? Oh, look! And like, you know, they should do the beer kegs in the same bottles yeah, in hamster cages just to take the metaphor there. But it was just like, okay, yeah. And it's like, 
this is a real estate company, right? Like, I don't, oh, I don't get it, right? Guess what? It's, it's, it is, in fact, a real estate company. It was just bizarre. The whole thing, just like, I didn't, I didn't get it. The other thing that's crazy about it is that it was like predicated. And again, like, I was also like, well, wait. So SoftBank is buying stuff and then it's selling it to the Vision Fund at a higher valuation. How does that work? <laughs> you know, and I was like, do I not understand something? Because the SoftBank doesn't lie. It's a very honest, like they're very honest about what they do, right? To their credit, like, you know, it's complicated stuff, but if you spend the time, it's like, it's all there. There's nothing hidden about it. There's nothing devious, right? It's very transparent, but it's kind of like, you know, these rounds where, and this is like a broader issue with private markets is that like, oh, we're worth $10 billion according to four investors. Like it's a tiny, it's not like a public market where there's like actually a consensus and like, lots of like real liquidity and so the market the price is sort of somehow more validated but when it's a private market like who has the incentive like you can't short a private company right i guess i'm sure somebody could figure it out but like there's not a lot of people who are going to say like i'm one of the four investors in this company and i think this this, this company is actually worth one tenth of what it is right okay. there's never the incentive is to like no 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 we need to this is a stinky potato but like let's pass it on to somebody that's else right, that's right do you think SoftBank so, is yeah. going to be able to raise like a second vision fund in I don't, I, I don't get, I don't, I mean like, so they, they, they say they're working on it. A big chunk of it this time is going to be SoftBank's own money. The company itself is telling its employees to borrow money to invest in the fund. Wow. Some of the stuff it like, it, it's was a little fast and loose when it said like, oh, we have commitments from other investors and the other investors were like, we didn't commit. We just signed an NDA so that we could actually look at the fund, but we haven't put any money in yet. I'm very skeptical about it. I, I really feel, you know, the Saudis, once the Saudis back away, who's going to step in with a $45 billion check, right? You know, especially like Uber's not doing so well. So yes, Uber has not performed very well with their IPO. And then we also see, you know, WeWork fail to even go public. So do you think that has really changed the public market's perception of these startup unicorns? Yes. The story was, look, Amazon wasn't profitable, but it's growing, 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 but it's different. Um, Amazon was not subsidizing the businesses in the same way. It was investing in growth as opposed to buying its dollars, right? Like there are businesses where there is really a network effect. And I'd argue that I, I don't quite get the network effect in, in transportation in Uber, right? It's not that like, if you look at taxis traditionally, it's a local business, right? The fact that I have a, a taxi service in New York City doesn't necessarily give me economies of scale to operate a taxi service in another city. Perhaps maybe I have more purchasing power for the fleet, but then Uber doesn't buy the fleet. So where does the, the scale come in? Like, I don't get it. Like I once actually asked Uber executives, I was like, why do you need to be international? And they were like, oh, international traveler. Like, that's like, what, 1% of the business? Like, I just didn't, like, like, they couldn't answer. Like, again, I feel like I'm like, Pampers naked, right? Like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's interesting because there is a lot of exuberance in the U.S. stock market, right? But there's also people sort of saying, hey, wait a second, right? It was this weird thing where like the private markets were like growing and growing and growing and everyone's like, oh, the real, like the private equity guys, are, they're geniuses, right? Because they're like seeing this huge upside and these companies are staying private for longer and longer and longer. And, and it turns out that maybe they were staying private for longer and longer and longer because going public would have not would, it, it would have they'd have to reveal all this stuff and be held That's up to right. a level of scrutiny right and there was also especially in asia there was this feeling like 
people would kind of joke about like, we're going to dump it on the dumb money, right? Because, oh, these are just like, you know, I, I'm the VC, I'm the PE, I'm an expert. I really understand, you know, I'm in the trenches. I, I like to, And then like these guys who are just looking at Excel spreadsheets, they're just the dumb money and they'll just buy whatever. It's like, they're like, yeah, we maybe we do just look at a spreadsheet, but it's like, I need to see cash flow, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Maybe that's why Didi hasn't gone public yet. Maybe that's why you know, you're Didi's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Didi, like, right, right. It, and I mean, well, Didi got like the murders, right? That was that, like a yes. complete. Having people killed on on your cars is not is not a good look for any yeah, company. Now, one. granted, particularly gruesome murders, no less, right? Really, just okay. just awful, awful, awful. Uh, and to its credit, Didi kind of buckled down. I mean, they also had no choice because, again, like the Communist Party was on them, like white on rice, right? Like they they had like a committees within the company, like going over them with a fine tooth comb. And so they really had to knuckle down. And this was not the time to be talking about an IPO, right? So that's only one thing to take into account for why their 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 plans changed. And granted, it's not as if that like Uber doesn't have acts of violence committed by its drivers or you know to its passengers. But I think in China, the risk is that, like, I think as a percentage of the market, I think Didi's probably bigger than Uber in the U.S. in terms of, like, ride-hailing slash all transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because far more Americans drive themselves, right, like, than, than in China. But, like, I think what was the, the number I'd seen was that, like, in, in the U.S., in China, car penetration is, like, you know, like two out of ten people. But, like, ride-hailing is, like, nine out of ten people have used it. So almost everybody uses ride-hailing in China, whereas I think in the U.S. it's still a very much limited to certain urban centers, probably not even every city in the U.S. So its impact is much visibility. Its impact is much higher. Also, the expectations are, frankly, like, China is, broadly speaking, a safer place than the U.S., Yes, they kind of don't have mass argument. shootings. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we're, because we're not allowed to own guns in, the, uh, in China. And, and amen to that, because I can only, you know, because frankly, <laughs> right now, there's also surveillance everywhere. So that kind of helps. Right. And, and, yeah. And then, you know, what? you take the good with the bad. Like, you know, among the most top 10 surveilled cities in the world is London. Huh. I didn't know that. I think they're not as competent in handling the data. Um, <laughs> surveillance is actually a big in Europe as well. But so against the, within the context of a very, of a place where violence is still, murder is still kind of sh- has, has a higher shock value, you know, th- those things really stood out. And Didi has a lots of cash, you know, still coming in. You know, I think their, their challenge is going to be like, they have to list in the U.S. or overseas. I didn't know this, but in Hong Kong for a long time, there were also require- listing requirements that you'd be profitable. You had to like get a waiver to list if you weren't profitable, similar to how in the mainland where you have to show prop to list in mainland markets, I think except for the new star market or whatever. But broadly speaking, in- to list in China, you also have to show profit for uh, a certain amount of time. Whereas in the US, we're like, oh, you want to list your hot dog? As long as you disclose that you're listing shares in a hot dog, you know, it's buyer beware, right? <laughs> yes. So, no, literally, you can list anything in right. the U.S. That's and, you know, if people want to, if you can if you can convince, you know, somebody to underwrite and somebody to buy shares, and it, you know, mm-hmm. good on you. And in the U.K., you can list what's called the blank check company, where it's just like, hi, we're 10 people. We've done things in the past. We'd like to raise money to do something in the future. It's like, okay, you got great. So DD, because it's still not, I think broadly speaking, it's still losing money. I don't think it's profitable as a whole from what i understand i mean obviously they don't disclose this so right. who knows but they'd likely have to list in the u.s 
the problem is if they list in the US and their comparables are listed in Uber, people are going to be like, well, eh? right. Right. And then especially in China where it's still like, so you're facing a lot of regulation, you're having problems increasing your fleet because, you know, the, the local, all, you know, like transportation. Yeah. So it's like the growth story there is not a great one. So I don't know. I think next year is going to be uh, a make or break for DDE. So let's right. talk about next year. What are hmm. some of your predictions for 2020, a new decade, and what are some of the key things that you're going to be watching out for? I'm going to be watching out for increased hair loss and joint pain. <laughs> no. You know, it's going to be the U.S.-China relationship and the trade war. Will it get worse? Will it get better? If it gets worse, how does China retaliate? Is Apple going to be threatened in China? Mm -hmm. Will its businesses be under assault? What about production? What about cross-border collaboration and everything from R&D labs to research in universities. I mean, this is really just not going to go away. And if it gets worse, how does this play out? That's definitely, I think, the biggest. And, and, and I can't predict on this one because it's Trump is be impeached. Like, right. what the heck? I, mean, I know. Like, this, it's just, this is the thing is like the uncertainty for next year is bananas. That's right. It's, but it's just crazy. Like the, the, the other big question then is Chinese economy. China's economy is it's growing at a ridiculous pace still, what five point nine percent? Like, and it's not a small country anymore, right? Like, yes, five years ago it was growing at like fifteen percent or whatever, twelve percent at a lower base. Now it's you know one of the largest economies in the world and still growing at this blistering pace. But it is the slowest growth in decades. There are no indications that it's going to turn around. I think the pace will continue to slow down. I also think that we don't really see the full extent of the pain. I think there's actually, it's not, you know, it's not across the country, but there are places, there are parts of China that I, that from what I understand are already in a recession. Yes, and you can I see that. that actually. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like in the U S like you, you could be rust belt, right? So it's yes, like, it's the right. way you could have a boom in San Francisco, but a bust in Detroit. But I think the trade war is inflicting damage on the most important and dynamic part of the Chinese economy, which is the private sector. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we fully understand the extent to which the private sector is leveraged throughout the system because these guys, you know, all these guys are borrowing money left, right, and central, and they're dumping that money into everything from venture capital to stock markets to real estate. And as they start feeling pain, you know, every dollar they make is leveraged 10, 20 times is my guess. Once they start defaulting, like, I just don't know that we, we understand the, the full extent of that, of that impact on the economy because they are the most dynamic part that delivers the most jobs and growth, right? Who knows what's going to go on with the Chinese economy? Now, it's interesting to see that, like, so far, companies like Ali and JD have weathered the slowdown handsomely. Will they continue to be able to grow? I mean, is what's going to happen that like inefficient brick and mortar businesses will increasingly go online where your know, margins are greater and your efficiencies are better and so you can still make a good buck? I don't know. Pinduoduo is telling a different story, right? Is that just Pinduoduo's operations were not as sophisticated or as attuned to the changing economy? I don't know. So definitely like the other big thing to watch out for is the slowing economy. Now granted, Chinese government still has this massive firepower in terms of its ability to issue stimulus, but I think they're also nervous about rising levels of debt. Like how long can they keep, 
you know, because it's no longer just national debt, it's also household debt is getting really high. And at some point, like, it's just, they get nervous, right? I think there's a nervousness in China about their options. And I, I think that's why they're continuing this, these embarrassing, constant rounds of trade negotiations, which I think for, from Chinese perspective are humiliating. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. It's just like, right? And yes. he's like, yes. a, I mean, he's a smart guy. He is like a rock star. And I'm going to go cap in hand back to these, you know, bozos in D.C. where he thinks he's talking to one guy, but then Trump tweets something else. Like, I think that's an indication of how nervous the regime is about the stability of the economy. Okay, so that's so that's another thing. Like, what's going to be with the growth? Um, earlier, you uh, already gave a prediction. You said that you think TikTok is going to scale back and renew its focus in China, and then maybe hmm. you know look into you know focusing more on India and maybe Africa. But for sure, you think that they're going to retreat from the U.S. Yeah, I think it's going to take them a while. I think it's going to be maybe around October. But I think they're Ooh, going to be giving a specific uh, month. I like it. Yeah, because <laughs> elections. It's, it's going to become an election topic. Gotcha. I think the closer we get to the elections, the more the TikTok will become a scapegoat and punching bag. What about for any other Chinese company? Any predictions for Huawei or any other Chinese tech company? So Huawei is going to get like a temporary reprieve. It's going to get licenses to continue using key technology and infrastructure from the U.S. because those companies are lobbying like crazy right now yes. to get they these exemptions. Money. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a huge market, right? And Trump needs the Chinese, the U.S. economy to keep humming, right? So, so like quietly, quietly, like all these companies will be allowed to keep selling the Huawei. Right. <laughs> so, but, but so what, what that does is that buys that buys all, all China needs is like two to three years, and then like at least on the hardware side, they might be able to do it all by themselves. I don't know that like how long it takes to replace a Google Play. It, ecosystem of apps and services, but they're going to be working overtime to do that. And maybe in like growth uh, emerging markets like Africa and Southeast Asia, they can win. So that's what I think is going to happen for Huawei. I think the, the vanishing of SoftBank's billions is going to ripple all over the world. You know, that was like SoftBank became the dumb money of the markets, right? <laughs> it was sort of people were like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll sell the SoftBank, right? And like all these valuations kind of went up because because of SoftBank. And I think as increasingly people grow skeptical or nervous that SoftBank's not going to be able to replicate its $100 billion spending spree, you're going to see valuations falling or, or not rising at the same ridiculous way uh, all over uh, the world, in particular in this region, where I think, you know, you saw things like Oyo, which I'm just also super, super skeptical of by valuation. It's just like, you know, when the founder borrows $2 billion, that's guaranteed by, I believe it's I read in the Wall Street Journal, the loan is guaranteed by Masa. That just seems like, what? You know, you know, and then like what's going on in, 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 in Southeast Asia with Grab and Gojek without the big paychecks. And, you know, and again, for like Didi, you know, Didi also had a huge paycheck from SoftBank. And if SoftBank is looking at them and saying, like, I need you to start delivering, mm -hmm. right? Like, there's going to be a massive shift, you know, from as SoftBank's strategy shifts from, like, just grow, demolish them with your growth to, like, I need to see some uh, ROI kids. So that's going to be having a huge impact on the way uh, all startups act in the region. What else do I think is going to be happening? Broadly speaking, the shift of money, basically because of the uh, cold war or the potential for a cold tech war between the US and China, mm -hmm. you know, last year and the year before, 
record amounts of capital were raised for investing in China. And that's become just very, very complicated, especially like things that look like they were plain vanilla investments, like artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. have suddenly become explosive. Like, oh my God, your facial recognition is used in Sinjin. Like, ah, like, you know, US pension funds are suddenly saying like, oh, crud, like I, <laughs> you know, what the heck? So India and Southeast Asia are going to be the recipients of massive amounts of interest and in, in capital, both from the money that was raised, you know, but from Western capital, but also Chinese investors, because like China is a tough market, there's a slowdown, right? It's going to be harder and harder to find. You, know, you can see already like, like VC investment in China has really fallen off a cliff. Uh, the investments are just concentrating in a couple of mega deals, you know, no one's risk. But in Southeast Asia and India, there's a lot of like, people see a lot of potential. And yes, in the short term, you know, we did one of the most interesting stories I did was we, we compared like ad revenue, because basically the internet, the real money in the internet is ads, right? That's what powers the digital advertising. That's right. So it turns out that India, although India has the world's second biggest online community after China, but China went online as it got richer, right? People were able to afford forward smartphones and internet access as their incomes rose. In India, what's happened, the smartphone revolution has happened not because incomes have risen, but because data on smartphones have become super, super cheap. So the average user in, in India isn't worth a lot, even though they're like 400 million, 500 million, I think yeah, about a half a billion internet users in India, the total for ad revenue in India is less than it is in Southeast Asia. And that makes sense when you think about it. So so you're actually just comparing. So really, you're not comparing countries, you're comparing a bunch of cities. Right. So in India, it might be New Delhi, Bangalore, I don't know, a couple of other places. And in Southeast Asia, you're really looking at KL, Jakarta, Saigon, Manila, Bangkok, where else? A couple of, hand, you know, a couple other cities. And that's really what you're looking at. And so in Singapore, and so you're comparing GDP per capita in those cities, Southeast Asia per capita, I think is richer, Indonesia, but a VC. So the short term, that's the reality. And it looks like the digital dollar, the digital ad revenue will still be stronger in Southeast Asia than in India for a long time. But if I'm a VC, I've got a 10 year horizon. And in 10 years time, things will be different. Well, I think you gave us quite a few things to think about and also certain perspectives that we should look from and then areas that we should focus on. Now, how do my audience find you if they want to hear more of what you have to say or, you know, read more about the information, etc.? This is time to do your ad. <laughs> well, smoke signals, faxes, stone carvings work, <laughs> but probably more efficient would be to subscribe to the information. That's theinformation.com. You can follow me uh, on Twitter. I'm Beijing scribe and also now we have a new we, we have an app finally Woo-hoo! yeah the information top 10 you can find us on your app store it's the top tech stories from the information sent to you every day uh, we do our analysis of what's what you need to know to to stay abreast of, of uh, the top tech topics of, of our time so definitely yeah. subscribe to the information's top tech stories our new app. It's very exciting. And, I saw um, that. You can also, and I thought that was yeah. a great idea because I the top so. 10 mm-hmm. videos are like some of the most popular type of videos, most watched on YouTube, you know, top 10, anything, you know, people just want to click in and, and like find out oh, what's, what's the best. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And there's so much going on and you know, it's, it's expertly curated. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
No, so it's it's the reporters on the beat who will be like, oh, I think this is this is important. You need to know about this. Uh, also, you can reach me at shy s h a i at theinformation.com. Happy to hear tips, complaints, political rants, manifestos, whatever you got, shoot it my way. Whether it's about China, India, Asia, or tech globally, and of course, you know, we're always interested in hearing more from people uh, in the area. If you got a hot tip or something, you know. My, my DMs are open. <laughs> and like you can also slip us a DM at at Analyze Asia. That is Analyze with a S. And of course, you can find all of our podcast episodes on iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Himalaya, everywhere. And we've come to the end of this episode. And thank you so much, Shai. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And hopefully, I will be here to talk to you next year, and we can see how well you score. I know we didn't have as many, you know, very definite predictions, but I think it'll still be interesting to see how 2020 unfolds. Thank you so much, Shai. All right, take care.